Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the interview on virtual reality investing with Adam Draper. Really fun interview there with Adam. I can't wait to see some of the companies that come out of his accelerator. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is called VR versus AR. Adam described VR as creating an entirely new environment that the user interacts with. In a virtual reality experience, the user is completely immersed in a virtual world, whereas he described AR as augmenting the real world with digital data. So with augmented reality, the user is seeing the real world and virtual objects are introduced or overlaid within it. And in Adam's estimation, he thinks the two will converge into the same technology. As he looks to the future, it seems more likely that the glasses, or whatever lenses are used to cover the eyes, will be the same for both VR and AR. It's pretty amazing to imagine a future in which one will not have to turn on a TV to watch a film. They could have an even better viewing experience, no matter where they are, through glasses or lenses. Or if one receives a text message, they will not have to fish their smartphone out of their pocket they can choose to have the message appear in their peripheral vision. As Adam mentioned, it's pretty exciting that graphics, connectivity, and data transfer are at a place that allows the new VR platforms to realize this potential. Key takeaway number two is called major segments in the VR stack. Adam talked about three major segments in today's interview. Tools for creating content, infrastructure software, and education. On the first element, tools for creating content, Adam described types of capture. This included 360 video, 3D volumetric scanning, and photogrammetry. Number two was infrastructure software. Here he talked about compression technology and also what he calls cloud graphics. This is rendering software for computation as a service. And he believes that this will be necessary in the future if rendering is done in the cloud for VR. And finally, number three, he talked about education. Here he provided the example of the internet, which allowed all of the information around the world to be indexed, allowing users easier access and faster consumption. And now with VR, it indexes experiences and allows them to be accessed more easily and consumed more quickly. 
And key takeaway number three here is called VR Industries and Market Opportunities. When reviewing consumer applications and industries for VR, Adam mentioned opportunities within education, social, retail, media, entertainment, content, and the gaming spaces. Some of the longer-term opportunities included education. So again, Adam cited education as a major area for disruption and an opportunity for VR. He talked about how the current education model is one that was created hundreds of years ago. It doesn't apply to a world that has all of this data readily accessible, where skills can be learned faster and on demand. Another long-term segment we discussed was retail. On retail, Adam talked about the potential for visiting stores and viewing accurate renderings of real products without ever leaving your home. It's tough for me to imagine shopping for clothes this way, but retail has and will continue to be disrupted even more significantly in the future. And then we discuss entertainment. Here, Adam talked about how movie makers are looking for new ways to tell stories and also disrupt the old ways that movies have been created. And then we talked about two shorter-term opportunities that may happen in the more near future. First was content. Adam mentioned how in the early days, there will be few producers of content and even fewer producers of really high-quality content. So while there won't be a mass market of users at the outset, every user will download the best content because there won't be much out there. This reminds me a bit of the early app market in the first couple years of the iPhone. The limited number of apps that existed made the better ones extremely popular. And the other short-term category we talked about was gaming. More interactive and high-velocity options will exist, and maybe one of the purchase drivers similar to the way that many bought iPhones to access some of the best mobile games. However, even though these games will be more interactive, they may not necessarily replace existing methods of gaming, which relates to our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Zero Sum Tech, Addition versus Replacement. In today's interview, we discussed how, in many applications, VR won't replace existing methods or use models. Rather, it will be a new and different level of interaction that's additive. Many have a fear of change and technological innovation because it can be perceived as destroying old ways of doing things. And in a lot of cases, old technologies that have no experience value will be replaced. But new technology often does not mean the end of existing tech. Did the automobile replace the bicycle? Did the smartphone replace the PC? Did the treadmill replace running outdoors? In the interview, Adam weighed in on addition versus replacement with regards to games. He talked about how video games didn't replace board games, and mobile games didn't replace video games. They were additive, and likely increased the total market size for gaming in its original forms, possibly because they introduced new users to gaming. His position was similar on VR. It will not replace existing forms of gaming, but rather will add to it. Another example we discussed was related to travel. Adam believes that virtual travel experiences will actually increase interest in traditional travel rather than displace it. As I think about the way travel and many other products are sold, it is often done through storytelling. Combinations of visual and verbal stories can make a strange foreign place seem very desirable to visit. And I can't imagine a better storytelling technology than virtual reality. Look, change is tough. Technology is often seen as a threat instead of an opportunity. 
As we discussed in the episode on blockchain with William Mugayar, large businesses are focused on consolidating and increasing power. So naturally, many view new technology as a disruptive threat that destroys value. But technology is not a zero-sum game. For every unit of value created with new tech, a unit of value is not extracted from the world. Quite the contrary, the more efficient we get and the more access we have to information, tools, and each other, the more value will be created. There is a reason why the stock market, long-term, moves up into the right. And it's not just because there are more human consumers in the world. True innovation yields true accretive value creation. Coming up next, we have the final thoughts from the episode No Fun Allowed with Jonathan Trieste and Brett Demeray. Had a lot of fun with Jonathan and Brett doing that interview. Let's recap our key takeaways. Number one is called the Slack Stack. Brett made a serious and interesting point when we were discussing unicorns. He mentioned an indicator he's seen where billion-dollar companies have become companies worth tens of billions. Startups that have built a platform upon which other startups are now building businesses. We have seen this many times before, both with private and public companies. Apple built a mobile platform upon which many mobile-based startups were founded. Amazon built a platform that spawned many product and e-commerce companies that otherwise wouldn't have existed. And pick your social network. Many have thriving ecosystems of startups built upon them. Brett's observation is that he's now seeing a number of startup pitches that are building businesses on Slack. And while these businesses may be creating their own value, they are also significantly enhancing the value of Slack itself. Closed systems can only build value organically, but open systems can democratize innovation and crowdsource their growth. Key takeaway number two is called different strokes for different folks. Everyone has their own strengths and approach toward investing. When asked about investor similarities to superheroes, Jonathan compared Naval Ravikant to Yoda and Brad Feld to Professor Xavier. Admittedly, there have been times when I've thought, I'll never be as philosophical as Naval or as knowledgeable as Brad. And today's discussion was a good reminder that we all have unique strengths and areas of focus. Even Jonathan and Brett have clearly carved out their own niche of being friendly, approachable, fun, and team-oriented when it comes to startup investing. And key takeaway number three is called Moonshots Welcome, Just No Moonshots. The final takeaway today relates to Jonathan's story about a startup trying to raise multiple billions to advertise on the moon. This is now one of a number of moon-focused startups discussed on the podcast. Off the top of my head, I also recall Charlie O'Donnell citing a startup that was planning to build a bridge to the moon. Look, moonshots are great. We all love hearing about very ambitious ideas with 100x return potential. But let's not take the shoot for the moon suggestions too literal. If you're a PhD astrophysicist proposing a space startup, let's talk. Otherwise, it's probably best to keep both feet on the ground. And this relates to this week's tip, which is give me a reason to believe. In my previous life, leading breakthrough product innovation, we encouraged crazy ideas. But after a brainstorming session, each imaginative possibility that was worth exploring had to be framed up in three parts. And we called this a concept. The three components of a concept were, number one, the problem. What is the existing problem being solved? Number two, the benefit. What is the customer benefit of the new solution? 
And number three, the reason to believe. What is it about the technology or approach that makes this solution possible? In other words, why should we believe that this product delivers on the benefit in number two? To illustrate a very simple example of this, let's use the iPod, which was first released in late 2001. First, the problem that the iPod was addressing? Music listeners could not listen to their entire library of music on the go. Number two, the benefit of the new solution? With the iPod, music listeners can now listen to their entire music library anytime, anywhere. And number three, the reason to believe. With new MP3 file format technology, previously large music files now require very little storage space. The iPod can store thousands of MP3 files in a form factor no larger than a deck of cards. Again, the reason to believe answers the question, how is this possible? And Apple played no role in developing the MP3 file format. They just leveraged the reduction in file sizes to their benefit. Many investors talk about the problem of timing and how some great businesses were just too early. John Houston mentioned this when he was a guest on the program, where he cited the failure of Webvan and the success of Instacart. The problem always existed. The benefit of easy food delivery was a real value, but the reason to believe was suspect with Webvan. Technology and logistics were just not ready for Webvan to succeed. And at times, a reason to believe may simply be the people involved in the effort. At the idea stage, maybe a team knows the problem they are addressing, but they don't know how they're going to solve it. When Elon Musk said he was going to build his own rockets for SpaceX, the only reason to believe was that Elon was set on doing it and would put together the right team to make it happen. I recently had an email discussion with a listener on the three parts of a concept. They had downloaded the episode of Why I Invested on Tovala, and they wanted my opinion on a competitor of Tovala that is addressing the same problem. This company is leveraging people's existing ovens to cook pre-prepared meals. If you recall, Tovala has created their own smart oven to cook their pre-prepared meals. Clearly, both Tovala and this competitor are addressing the same problem, an inability to have a fresh, healthy, home-cooked meal with no preparation required. And they are both proposing to deliver the same benefit, a delicious, healthy meal with no prep required. But without having tried the food, I can confidently say that the reason to believe is pretty shaky with the competitor. While Tovala has created a smart oven that utilizes baking, broiling, steaming, and convection cooking, this competitor's solution includes only a standard oven. There is no new technology or innovative approach in their solution that gives the customer a reason to believe. With every startup I invest in, I write down the problem, the customer benefit, and the reason to believe in my own words. And for me, each of these three needs to be clear, compelling, and significant. Is the problem real? Is the benefit going to delight the customer? And is there a reason why this solution will work where nothing else has? So today, I ask all founders, give your customers and your investors a reason to believe. All right, that will wrap things up for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thanks for your patience over this past week. I will try and get on a more consistent publishing schedule here as some of my consulting engagements are wrapping up. 
And some of the engagements I have helping folks start syndicates on AngelList will be wrapping up soon, too. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Up next, we have the takeaways and tips from the episode Artificial Intelligence Investing with Nathan Banesh. Big thanks to Nathan for spending the extra time to address this deep and fascinating topic. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the pace of progress. First, we started with a definition of AI, which in Nathan's estimation is the field of building computer systems that can understand and learn from observations without the need to be explicitly programmed and that these systems can perform functions that are increasingly human-like. Nathan referred to AI as the umbrella term that includes all disciplines and technologies required to build those systems. Next, we discuss the concepts that illustrate technological progress contributing to the advancement of AI. Those two concepts were the law of accelerating returns and also Moore's law. First, the law of accelerating returns was first discussed by Ray Kurzweil, and says that as a society becomes more advanced, the rate at which it can progress increases. This is anything but linear. The rate at which technology has advanced in the past decade is much greater than the rate of advancement the decade before it, which is much greater than the decade before that. Here Nathan cited compute capacity and cost, which related to Moore's law. The maximum computing power doubles roughly every two years. Both of these laws have proven their merit as we measure progress and compute capacity over the past century. And they have significant implications on AI as it moves through different phases of development. And those phases and types of AI discuss included artificial narrow intelligence, ANI, artificial general intelligence, AGI, and artificial superintelligence, ASI. First, artificial narrow intelligence is intelligence around a very specific subtask. The intelligence system is narrow focused on a specific problem, and is unable to do anything else. Here is where Nathan cited the example of IBM Deep Blue, which beat Garry Kasparov in chess. There are many examples of existing narrow intelligence systems. Then we discussed artificial general intelligence. This is the goal of Google's DeepMind, intelligence from a non-human system that is on par with tasks that can be completed by humans. This could include reasoning, planning, communicating, and even exhibiting emotion. 
And this can be accomplished without the need for re-engineering, reprogramming, or rebuilding the system. The experts from the science community generally believe that AGI will be reached within the next one to two decades. And finally, artificial superintelligence. As Nathan described, this is essentially the point of singularity, the point at which AI is more intelligent than humans. This encompasses every field or activity that humans can accomplish and things even beyond human capability. Creativity, wisdom, social skills, physical representation. An ASI system is one that is more performant in every single task than the smartest humans on Earth. And the experts predict this to be achieved by 2040. Key takeaway number two is the waves of AI. The first wave that we discussed were rules-based expert systems. Effectively, a series of if-this-then-that statements. These are great for knowledge workers that have activity trees and tasks that can be performed by software in a faster and more accurate fashion than humans. The second wave was the machine learning wave, where a raw training dataset and test dataset is required, with one being tested against the other. Here Nathan talked about supervised versus unsupervised approaches, the former providing examples upon which the data is tested against. And finally, the third wave. This was the deep learning wave, which requires massive data sets and significant processing power. We also discussed the technology categories within AI, including but not limited to machine learning and deep learning, predictive analytics, natural language processing and semantic analysis, speech recognition, computer vision, and others. And Nathan suggested that one considers which technology is best suited for the type of problem being dealt with. Examples of problem domains included images, text, and language. Okay, key takeaway number three is the VC AI landscape. Nathan sees a future of human-machine collaboration instead of just machine replacement. Knowledge work, information retrieval, task automation, and business automation are all areas that he cited which are ripe for AI application, especially as more SaaS services have become available that can acquire data and talk to each other. Nathan mentioned that a majority of VC funding in AI started in 2013. Last year, about $2 billion was invested in AI, which is roughly 4% of all VC-backed technology, and AI accounted for about 1% of all technology exits. And the primary sectors receiving funding at this point include business intelligence, predictive analytics, ad tech, and fintech. And Nathan also pointed out the health sector and predictive medicine. While most are focused on the threat of AI, they may be overlooking the incredible benefits, not only to our efficiency, but also to our well-being. Unfortunately, the majority of companies doing acquisitions in AI are not performing well in the public markets, which may also restrict their ability to continue making acquisitions in the area. And upon wrapping up the interview, Nathan questioned if the current broader VC category is well-suited to fund capital-intensive, long-time horizon technologies. It's certainly a legitimate question, as costs, risk profiles, and return expectations have changed over the past couple decades. And that relates well to our tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Changing the Asset Value Equation. In the last few interviews, the concept of a platform has come up while discussing very different types of technologies. With Jonathan Trieste and Brett Demaray, we discuss Slack and how it is transitioning from a standalone SaaS product to a platform with apps, plugins, and additional capabilities 
being built upon it. In the interview with Adam Draper, we discussed VR as a new platform and drew a parallel to the emergence of the iPhone, allowing an entirely new ecosystem to emerge. And today we discuss many different areas that AI will touch, one of which was transportation and technology for driverless cars. And I think it's timely with the recent Tesla 3 unveiling to discuss the implications of AI on hardware value and how the hardware value equation may be changing. But first, let's talk a little about software. A decade ago, with Shelf Software, it was quite normal to buy new versions of operating systems and common applications. I would walk into a Best Buy and purchase a box with a CD in it for Microsoft Windows or Office. Today, most products have moved to a SaaS model, and many operating systems update automatically, free of charge. And Nathan pointed out, with a cloud-based model, there are now data signatures and data exhaust that is captured in the cloud from those SaaS products. The data set continues to expand over time, and now, with AI systems that get smarter and smarter, the SaaS product increases in value over time. So an asset that once lost significant value immediately after I exited the Best Buy checkout line now begins appreciating after clicking the Buy Now button. One of the most common and expensive assets that loses the majority of its value after purchase is the car, right? You drive it off the lot, and immediately there's a significant gap between the purchase price paid and the resale value. But what if the majority of the car's value was now centralized in the cloud instead of decentralized at the vehicle? What if the capability, features, and experience continued getting better every day? What if the law of accelerating returns allows the promise of driverless technology to become a reality within a year after purchasing a car, and you immediately receive that benefit without having to purchase new hardware? What if your car was a platform, itself with apps, features, and technologies being built upon it by thousands of companies every day? The asset value equation has clearly changed with software, and SaaS has enabled the appreciation of many formerly depreciating assets. And I'm beginning to see this phenomena in more and more hardware products. Things like Nest, the Amazon Echo, and even my iPhone are all hardware assets that continue to provide more value to me over time. Platform-based technologies and SaaS have opened the gates to allow continuous product improvement. And AI may accelerate that improvement beyond what we can imagine. All right, that will wrap things up for this week. Check out show notes and links on the website. And feel free to shoot me an email at nick at fullratchet.net if you're a startup and you're looking for funding or if you're an investor and you want to collaborate. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.